0: me, some highlight clips of perhaps one of the greatest quarterbacks to ever play the game, Roger Staubach, and that is hard for me to say because he was a cowboy and I grew up in Houston as an Oilers fan, and uh, we all know that Warren Moon was the greatest quarterback to ever play the game. But Roger Staubach was one of the greatest quarterbacks to ever play the game, and one of the things that many people are surprised to learn about him is that he didn't actually call his own plays. In fact, this was a big struggle for him in his career because he was an NFL quarterback. And NFL quarterbacks are supposed to be allowed to call their own plays. But guess what? Guess who the coach of the Dallas Cowboys was when he was with the team? Tom Landry, one of the greatest coaches, a genius of a football mind. And so Tom Landry was the one who said, Hey, guess what? I'm the head coach. I'm going to call the plays. And Staubach began to realize how much of a genius uh, Tom Landry was when it came to football and to strategy. And so he had to set aside his pride and be able to let the coach run, run the team the way he felt the team should be run. And he said this in an interview one time. He said, Once I face the issue of obedience... I learned to, uh, and I learned to obey, there was harmony, fulfillment, and victory. Once I learned to obey, there was harmony, fulfillment, and victory. The absolute same thing could be say, said about our own lives. When we learn to trust God, when we learn to obey him, when we learn to submit our will to his sovereign will in our lives, when we do that, we find harmony, we find fulfillment, and we find victory. This morning, we're going to be looking at a story. We're continuing our series through Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, we've, we've made our way all the way up to the patriarchs, and this this morning, we're going to be with Isaac. Um, but we're going to see a story of a man who had to learn to trust God's sovereignty and submit his will to God's perfect and pleasing will. And I think one of the big And difficult things about that is that it goes against our own human nature. Just like Roger Staubach admits that it was an issue of his own pride of, hey, I'm an NFL quarterback, I should be able to call my own place. And he had to surrender his pride. He had to submit himself to God's perfect will, We or or to Tom Landry's perfect will. We have to submit our pride to God's perfect will. And I, I want us to start by looking at some definitions of what does it mean to be sovereign? What is sovereign? And I got these just off dictionary.com, but I really liked some of the wording, and I kind of pieced uh, my own definition together from there. It says, a sovereign is one who has supreme rank, power, or authority over, uh, and that authority is preeminent and indisputable, being above all others in character, importance, and excellence. Wouldn't you say that pretty well describes God? That he's above us, his authority is above us, his character is above us, his importance is above us, and he is the authority that is permanent and indisputable, ought to be indisputable in our lives. That's that's what it means to be sovereign, this idea that God is sovereign in our lives, that he is the ultimate authority. Now let's look at the word submit or submission. Submission is to yield oneself to the power or authority of another, to defer to another's judgment, opinion, or decision. And that's exactly what we are called to do. We are called to submit ourselves, to yield ourselves to the power and authority of God, and we defer to his judgment, his opinion, and his decisions for our lives. And that's a difficult thing. That's a difficult thing for us to do because we want to feel like we're in control and sometimes we see God's plan for our life and it doesn't match up with our plan. And, and often that's the hardest thing for us to do is because, you know what, God, I have this plan for my life. I had a five-year plan. I had a 10-year plan. I had a one-year plan. And this is what was supposed to happen. And now that it hasn't happened, what do I do? And that's exactly what we face here with Isaac, is that Isaac has a plan for his life. Isaac has a plan for the future of what's going to happen all the promises that were given to Abraham. We read in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, just to remind us of where we are. It says... These all died, talking about the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Sarah, Jacob, and Joseph. They all died in faith without having received the promises. So God promises to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. I will make you into a great nation. Your descendants will be as numerous as the sands on the seashore. Abraham dies. He doesn't have any land that God promised. He only has really one son through whom God says he's going to promise, and he doesn't yet have any grandchildren. So he hasn't seen any of the promises. Isaac, when he dies, hasn't seen the fulfillment of the promises. Joseph, the son of Jacob, is really the first one who starts to get to see these promises. But they saw them from a distance. They greeted them and they confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. So they see these promises, then trusting God for their future, submitting themselves, saying, Okay, God, I know that you have a plan for my future and I'm going to submit it to you. I'm going to trust you for my future future and God calls us to do the exact same thing let's look at what Hebrews 11 has to say about Isaac it says by faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning the things to come now here's the interesting thing about Isaac all of the other patriarchs have about 12 chapters devoted to them Isaac really only has two Chapter 26 and chapter 27, and here's the amazing thing about Isaac, even as you read those chapters, chapter 27 isn't really about Isaac, it's really about Jacob, Esau, and Rebecca, and Isaac's just kind of a side character. It, throughout his whole life, things kind of happen to him and they happen around him, but he doesn't ever really do anything. He's only got two chapters, all the other patriarchs have 12, and, and I started looking at this and I was like, man, he's, he's kind of a like a lame duck of a patriarch, but... You know, what is there in his life that he does that's, that would make God say later on, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? I mean, obviously he had to have some, some sort of faith. And we start thinking about his life, and, and I'm sure his parents told him how he was conceived and he was born when Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90 years old and that he was the son of the promise. And he understood all that. And then when he's a teenager, probably at least 13 years old, his dad takes him up to Mount Moriah and is getting ready to sacrifice him because God told him to. Now, here's the thing about that story is you have to understand Abraham is is at the very least 113 years old. Now, I don't know if you know many 113-year-olds versus a 13-year-old, but I'm pretty sure if the 13-year-old didn't want to get up on that altar, there's nothing the 113-year-old man could do to, to put in there which means that Isaac had to get on that altar himself. He had to let himself be bound. What a demonstration of faith. Some, somewhere along the way, Abraham said, hey, God has promised that you are going to have descendants, that you are the son of the promise, and all these promises are going to be fulfilled through you. And even as a young man, Isaac said, okay, God, dad, I trust you. I trust that you're hearing from God, and I trust that God's going to provide. He had to do that. And then we don't really hear from Isaac until his, his mom dies, and his dad sends off one of his slaves uh, to find a wife for Isaac. Talk about faith, right? How many of you would let your dad, dad's servant, uh, pick a wife or a spouse for you? I don't think I'd sign up for that one. But he has faith that God's going to provide. And when we see Isaac and Rebekah meet for the first time, Isaac is in the field. He's praying and he's meditating, is what the scripture says. So here's a man who who has this faith, but then we read stories uh, about how when it came time for him to have kids, Rebecca couldn't have kids. But what does he do? It says that he prayed, and God gave her twins. God gives her twins, and at their birth and at their pregnancy, um, there's a prophecy spoken about the twins, that the older will serve the younger. That's going to be important in a little while. And then we read stories about how uh, he goes into the land of Abimelech, there's a uh, famine and he goes under this king Abimelech whom his dad had known, and he goes into the land and he's afraid because his wife is beautiful. And so he tells king Abimelech that his wife is actually his sister. I wonder where he learned that from. He learned that from his dad. But it shows an absolute lack of faith that God could protect him. And then he moves on from there and finally he ends up in this place in Canaan and the Philistines keep filling up his wells. They fill up his well, and what does he do? He doesn't fight back. He just picks up and he moves. And I kind of wrestled with that this week. Is he just like a passive dude? Like he just doesn't trust that if he goes out against and battles against the Philistines, that God's going to take care of it? Or or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe he has great faith, and he says, you know what? If I move, God's going to provide another well, which is exactly what happened. So you could take that however you want. But again, stuff just kind of happens to Isaac, but he doesn't ever really do anything. He doesn't ever really show any any major steps of faith, but here he's commended at the end of his life for blessing his sons in faith. Now, I mentioned earlier in chapter 25, verses 22 through 26, uh, we read a little bit about the birth of his two sons, Jacob and Esau. Chapter 25, uh, verses 22 beginning in verse 22 it says this but the children inside her struggle that is Rebecca she becomes pregnant and the something's happened she realizes something is going on something's not right so she seeks the Lord and God tells her hey you're gonna have twins right and then he tells her this the children inside her struggled with each other and she said why is this happening to me so she went to inquire of the Lord and the Lord said to her Two nations are in your womb. Two people will come from you and be separated. One people will be stronger than the other. The older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, indeed, there were twins in her womb, but the first came out red-looking, covered with hair, a fur coat, and they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out, grasping Esau's heel with his hand, so he, named, uh, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when uh, they were born. So, 60 years old. Isaac and Rachel, uh, Re- excuse me, Rebecca, have two sons, Jacob and Esau, and, and we see that these two boys from inside the womb, they were battling each other, but God says, you know what, the older is going to serve the younger, and then we come to Genesis 27. Time has gone by, Isaac is coming to the end of his life, and he realizes it's time for him to bless his sons and to pass on the blessing of Abraham to one of his sons. Yet somewhere in his life, along the way, we're told in the in the next part of Genesis um, 25, we read this beginning in verse 27. When the boys grew up, Esau became an expert hunter and outdoorsman, but Jacob was a quiet man who stayed at home. Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for wild game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So you have mom and dad... Picking favorites. Dad loves venison, so he loves the son that brings him venison. Jacob, we kind of get the impression, is a little bit of a mama's boy, and he stays at home, and he's helping mama in the kitchen. And so mama loves Jacob more than Esau, and Isaac loves Esau more than Jacob. So why is it he decides, he knows the prophecy, and there's no doubt in my mind, we'll talk about that in a minute, but he knows what God has said about his son, about the older is to serve the younger. That, hey, it's supposed to be Jacob. Jacob is the one who's supposed to get the blessing. Yet then we see in chapter 27, we have this crazy series of events where Jacob says, you know what, uh, excuse me, Isaac says, I'm at the end of my life, I'm about to die. He's 100, about 130, 137 years old, and he says, I'm, I'm about to die. So he calls Esau and he says, hey, um, before I die, I want you to go and hunt game for me. Make some of that great venison chili that you make and bring it to me and let me eat it before I I bless you and then I'm going to die, right? And so he does that, but Rebecca overhears that. Rebecca overhears that and says, hold on a second. God said that you're supposed to bless Jacob. So she calls Jacob in and she says, hey... Here's what you need to do. You need to go out, you need to get a young goat, and you need to kill it, and you need to bring me the meat, and I'm going to cook it and make it taste like venison. Now, she must have been some cook to make goat meat taste like venison, right? So she, she comes with, up with this plan, and Jacob says, hey, uh, we just read about it. Esau came out. He was red and hairy. Uh, I'm not hairy. I'm smooth-skinned right? I don't go out in the sun much. I don't have much hair on my body. And so she says, look, take the skin of the goat and put it on your arms. Now, I was down at the Christmas stroll the other night, and they had a baby goat in Bethlehem Village. And I don't know if you've pet a baby goat lately, but I'm here to tell you that Esau must have been like half-wookie. <laughs> like for, <laughs> for your skin to be matched with like that of a goat, that's pretty hairy, right? So Rachel uh, Rebecca says look just do what I tell you to do and you're going to go in and you're going to present yourself as Esau to your father and you're going to tell your dad that you're Esau and he's going to bless you and not Esau so this is what happens in chapter 27 we read in chapter 27 verse 18 so he's gone out he's done that his mom has made all the stuff um, she's made the soup and he brings it in in verse 18 he comes to his father and he said my father And he answered, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob replied to his father, Isaac, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How did you ever find it so quickly, my son? He replied, Because the Lord your God worked it out for me. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come closer so that I can touch you, my son. Are you really my son Esau or not? Isaac expects or suspects that something's up. He says, uh, then it goes on and says, So Jacob came closer to his father Isaac. And when he touched him, he said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize them because he, they were hairy like those of his brother Esau. So he blessed him. Again he asked, Are you really my son Esau? And he replied, I am. Then he said, Serve me and let me eat some of, some of my son's game so that I might bless you. Jacob brought it to him. He ate. And he uh, brought him wine and he drank. Then his father said to Isaac, said to him, Please come closer and kiss me, my son. So he came closer and kissed him. When Isaac smelled his clothes, he blessed him and said, Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of the sky from the richness of the land, the abundance of grain and new wine. May, May people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master over your brothers. May your mother's son bow down to you. Those who curse you will be cursed and those who bless you will be blessed. So what's happened here? How is it that when God says the older will serve the younger, Isaac knows what the word of God says, yet here he decides to go against it. He thinks he's blessing Esau. He wants to bless Esau. He wants Esau to be the one who inherits the promises of Abraham. And I think it's very clear, there's no doubt in my mind, that he understood the prophecy and that he had heard it before because right here in verse 27, he says, hey, be master over your brothers. He basically says, you know what? I know what God said. I know what your mother told me God said, but I'm going to reverse that. I'm going to make you master over your brothers, not your brother master over you. So why would he do this? Why would he do this? Well, we read earlier Jacob and Rebecca had picked favorites. They had their preference. They had their plans for what the future was going to look like. And I want us to see two negative things and then a couple positive things about what it looks like when we follow God by faith, when we submit our future to him. And the first thing that I want us to see is that our preferences keep us from submitting to God's perfect plan. Our preferences keep us from submitting to God's perfect plan. Like I said, God had made it absolutely clear what the plan was that Jacob was to inherit the promises and not Esau. Yet, because Isaac and Rebekah had picked favorites, they both begin to deviate from God's plan. They both begin to deviate from God's plan. Isaac deviates in the fact that he loves loves Esau. And he says, you know what? I know what God said, but I want Esau to be the one because Esau's my favorite. And so I'm not going to trust what God's word says. I'm going to do things my own way. I'm not going to submit to God's plan because I love Esau. And Rebekah is not any better. A lot of people read this story and they're like, oh, well, she's just trying to make sure that what God said comes, comes to happen, right? She's just following God's plan, trying to get Jacob to be the one that, that's blessed. Well, let me tell you, anytime we've, we're faced with a decision like this, we've got to understand the ends does not justify the means. Just like with Sarah and Abraham and Hagar and Ishmael, the ends didn't justify the means. Yes, they were trying to do the right thing, but they went about it the wrong way. They didn't put their faith in God, trusting that God's perfect plan was going to happen. And so they both end up going against God's perfect plan because of their own preference. Now, How many of us have our own preferences about what we want for our future, about what we want in our life, and, and we let our preferences supersede God's perfect plan for our lives? I know there was a point in my life where that's exactly where I was. When I came out of seminary, and actually even before I was in seminary, God called me to ministry when I was 17 years old. And I knew at 17 years old that I wanted to be a youth pastor. I'd been in youth ministry uh, as a teenager. I had about six youth pastors in six years. The average tenure for most youth pastors in America is 18 months. And I knew that I wanted to do something different. And so when I got to seminary and I had a professor challenge us and say, men, we need some people to commit to lifelong youth ministry, to find a church, be in a community, and make an impact on that community for your lifetime. Serve that community for 40 years, that you would have the children of the, the kids in your, that you first served, that their children would be in your youth ministry, and maybe even their grandchildren would be in your youth ministry, that you could impact generations in a community. And I was committed to that. I felt like this is exactly what God called me to do. But then something happened. About three years into ministry at a church in the Dallas area, the elders came to me and said, "Man, uh, we've seen your leadership. We've we've listened to your preaching, and we feel like God may have called and gifted you to be a lead pastor." And I flat out rejected that. I said, "You know what? Uh, not interested. Don't think I'm interested." My parents, all along, all the way through seminary, of course, parents always think that you know you should be the one that's that's the lead guy, right? Parents always feel that way about you. But they were telling me like, hey, man, you, you ought to consider this. I was like, no, this is what I'm going to do. I'm convicted. I, I feel like this is what God's going to call me to do. Obviously, you guys know how the story ends. Something changed. I, there came a point in my life where I had to submit to God's perfect will for my will, and it was not easy. It was not easy. And let me tell you that it actually... It, the longer I waited to follow, the more painful it became, the harder it became for me, the more strife I began to feel in my life. There was actually a point, uh, in, at the end of my ministry as a, as a youth pastor, where as a grown man, as a grown man, I would cry on my way to work. I would cry on my way to work because I was so unhappy I was so dissatisfied with with the way things were going and I couldn't figure out why. And it was when I realized that God was calling me to something else, that he was having me go through some painful stuff, some awful, terrible stuff that I endured uh, because I was dragging my feet, not willing to submit to his perfect will. And that's the second thing I want us to see is that that God, uh, failure to submit to God's plan will lead to strife. Failure to submit to God's plan will lead to strife. Let's look at Genesis twenty-seven, thirty through 41. There goes all my notes. All right, 27 uh, verses 30 through 41. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, and Jacob had left his presence of his father, his brother Esau arrived from the hunt. So Esau comes in from the hunt, and he starts making the stew. He starts making everything. He brings it to his dad, and he says, Hey, dad, here, I got your stuff. Uh, I'm ready for you to eat. But his father Isaac said to him, Who are you? He answered, I am Esau, your firstborn son. Isaac began to tremble uncontrollably. Who was it then, he said, who hunted game and brought it to me? I ate before you came and I blessed him. And indeed, he will be blessed. When Esau heard his father's word, he cried out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me too, my father. But he replied, Your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. So he said, Isn't he rightfully named Jacob? For he has now cheated me twice out of my birthright. And look, now he has taken my blessing. Then he asked, haven't you saved a blessing for me? But Isaac answered Esau, look, I have made him master over you and given him all of his relatives as his servants and have sustained him with grain and new wine. What then can I do for you? Esau said to his father, do you only have one blessing, my father? Bless me too, father Esau wept loudly. And his father Isaac answered him, Look, your dwelling place will be away from the richness of the land, away from the dew of the sky. You will live by your sword, and you will serve your brother. But when you rebel, you will break his, his yoke from your neck. Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. And Esau determined in his, in his heart, The days of mourning for my father are approaching, and then I will kill my brother. All this strife. A family is ripped apart because mom and dad chose to pursue their own plan for their lives instead of God's plan for their life. This family is ripped apart. Jacob ends up having to flee. He runs away. His brother wants to kill him. He runs away and is gone for 20 years. And we don't know for sure when Rebecca dies, but we don't read about her really after this point chapter 28, she sends Jacob away back to her family to find a wife and we don't really read about her again. We don't read about when she dies. So it's possible that during those 20 years that he was gone, her favorite son, she dies without ever seeing him again because she decided she was going to take matters into her own hands and try to force God's plan in her own way. Isaac, because he tried to force his own plan, now has sons that want to kill each other and he has one son who's content to just lie to him, lies to him three times in the course of about one sentence. And in fact, he even invokes God's name as he lies to his death. You have this family that's been torn apart because they started to pursue their own plan instead of God's. There's all this strife. Anytime we begin to pursue our plans over God's plans, when we fail to submit to God's plan, things get messy. Things get messy. And I told you about my, my experience as a youth pastor. It, it began at the end It began to affect me physically. I began to have problems with my hormone levels. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. I would go through periods of gaining weight and losing weight. uh, To be honest, I probably went through a season of of depression. And it affected me physically, spiritually, and emotionally. And I can tell you, it wasn't worth it to fight against God's plan. It wasn't worth it to fight against God's plan. But Hebrews 11.20 says that Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau by faith. Now, I don't think we can say that the first blessing that he gave Jacob was by faith because he thought he was blessing Esau. He knew he was going against the word of God. So I don't think we can say that that was by faith. So how is it that it said that he was blessed by faith? I think what happens is the moment that Esau comes in and Jacob, uh, excuse me, Isaac realizes that he's been duped, that he's been deceived by his son, he recognizes, he remembers what God's word said, that the older would serve the younger. And he knows the blessing that he just gave Jacob. And he says, you know what? I tried to get around God's plan, but I've been overruled. God's sovereign plan is going to be worked out no matter what. In spite of me messing it up, trying to mess it up, trying to mess with it, God's plan has been worked out. And he comes to a point and he realizes, you know what? There's nothing I can do to change God's plan. So when Esau asks for a blessing, he says, you know what? By faith, I trust that Jacob is the one. Now I know that Jacob is the one that God wants to pass the blessing on to. And so his blessing to Esau, I mean, if you read it, it actually kind of seems like a curse, but it's actually everything God said. You know what? Jacob is the one who's going to inherit the land. Jacob is the one who's going to have the descendants. Jacob is the one is going to have all the promises, and you're going to have to serve Jacob, because he's the one that God has chosen. And then we read in chapter 28 that he actually blesses Jacob. In chapter 28, he goes on in, the, in verses 3 and 4, it says, May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply so that you become an assembly of people. May God give you and your offspring the blessing of Abraham so that you may possess the land where you live as a foreigner. The, Lord, uh, the land God gave Abraham. So he gives Jacob a final blessing before he sends him off. And I think it's these two blessings that Scripture is talking about. Where Isaac finally comes to the point where he says, you know what, God has a plan for the future and it's different than mine. And I'm going to finally submit to that. And so in faith, I'm going I'm to make sure Esau understands that he's not the chosen one. And I'm going to reaffirm to Jacob, that even though he was deceitful in the way he went about it that he is God's chosen one. So what are the three positive things that we can learn from this? The three things that I want us to learn from this very quickly are number 1, following that we have to follow God's plan even when it's countercultural. Submitting to God's sovereignty for our future means that we follow God's plan even when it's countercultural. Now we talked about that that Uh, oracle that God gives, that the older will serve the younger. And this this was probably one of the reasons why I think Isaac struggled to bless Jacob. Because culturally, there's a word, it's called primogeniture. Primogeniture means that your firstborn is the one who inherits everything. They get everything. They get all the blessings. And the blessing in the Old Testament carried the force of a will. It could stand up in court, even if it was just an oral blessing. And so what we see is, I think, Isaac is, is thinking to himself, man, if I bless Jacob, what are the neighbors going to think? Like, they're going to think I'm crazy. Nobody gives their stuff to the secondborn. Nobody gives their stuff to the baby. It's always the firstborn. He's the one who should get all the stuff. And so he's wrestling through this idea that, hey, this, is, this goes against everything that everybody else around me is doing. And let me tell you, as followers of Christ, as Christians, God calls us to do the exact same thing. That we have to understand that when it comes to our future, we have to at times do things that are countercultural. And let me tell you this: I, I'm not saying that we need to be odd for God. Like when I was in high school, there were some kids that were like, "Yeah, we're going to be so countercultural." And I was like, "Look, all you're doing is drawing attention to yourself and making God look weird. You're not, <laughs> you're not doing Him any favors." But yes, there are things that God calls us to do that are countercultural. Things like tithing. Where else do you see in the, in the rest of the world? I mean, it, it goes against our culture because our culture says, I need to build up my wealth, not give 10% of it to the Lord first, the first fruits to God. I, that's crazy. It's crazy that you get up early to go to church on a Sunday morning. It's crazy that you would give your life to serve others. Our culture says, serve me God says, no, I want you to make your life about serving others. Another example, uh, for those of you who are not yet married in this room, uh, when my wife and I got married, we were both virgins. And that is something that is almost completely unheard of today. But that is something of which I am very proud that we were able to do that. That was countercultural. And people looked at us like we were crazy and people thought that we were insane and, well, how do you know that you're compatible? I'm like, well, I'm a man and she's a woman, so chances are, like, it's going to work physically. Uh, just the way God designed it. And, and I could tell you that, yes, that's countercultural. It's countercultural. Culture wants to tell you that that's absolutely normal. Uh, but God calls us to trust him for our future. And I trusted him with my future and my future spouse. And you may be here this morning and say, you know what, I've already messed up in that area. Well, guess what? You can start over right now. And you can trust that from this point on, that if if you remain absent, continue in your purity, that God will bless your future. God will bless your future with your spouse. Um, It's kind of a side note, but it was something that, that God called me to and I understood clearly his word and I trusted his plans for my future. As hard as it was at times, I trusted his plans for the future. So we have to live counterculturally. Next, we have to understand that submitting our will to God's sovereign will, sovereign plan for our lives, means that we accept his plan even when it's painful. Even when it's painful. I love the detail that we get about Isaac. And when he discovers that it was Jacob that he blessed and not Esau, it says he began to shake uncontrollably. I imagine that that moment was extremely painful for him. Painful because his plan didn't work out. Painful because he'd been lied to by one of his sons. Painful because the son that he wanted, the son that he loved most, was not going to be the one that was blessed. And so it's, I, I think it was physically painful for him. And so he begins to shake uncontrollably. I want to ask, what are the painful things that we go through? Sometimes we're called to let go of something that we love, and that's painful. Sometimes God calls us to let go of a dream, like being a youth pastor at one church for 40 years and staying in a community. Sometimes God calls us to let go of a habit, and that's painful, but he calls us to that, and sometimes he calls us to let go of a relationship. There's a friend or there's someone that is dragging us away from Lord from the Lord, and we have to say, you know what, I need, I need to put some boundaries around this relationship, and maybe it's time that I make some new relationships. Sometimes it's a painful event or a season in our life. Um, when my wife and I had been married for three years, I was finishing up seminary, and we decided that we wanted to start a family. We tried for two and a half years, and uh, no success. No success, and we began praying, and we were praying every single day that God would bless us with the child. And we never, never saw that happen. After two and a half years, my wife finally made an appointment with a fertility specialist. And on the day that she was supposed to go to the fertility specialist, she came in, I'll never forget, I was still asleep, she's getting ready for work, and she said, I'm pregnant. And I was like, Are you sure? And so she called the doctor as soon as they opened, and she's like, hey, I took three of these home tests this morning, and they all say I'm pregnant. And they're like, yeah, you're pregnant. Uh, if, if They all say the same thing. There's no need for you to come today. After two and a half, almost three years of trying and praying and asking God, we were finally pregnant. Six months in, we went in for a regular checkup, and the doctor said, uh, your, your baby is not growing anymore. In fact, uh, the baby has gotten smaller um, we don't know why we can't, we can't see anything in there that would cause this but uh, your baby is going to die and so we went home and we began praying and when we got on our knees and we prayed and we said God why would you do this we don't understand we, this is why would you after two and a half years give us a child only to let it die and so we prayed God not our will but your will be done But God, we want to make known our desire to you. Our desire is for you to heal this child, and we believe you can do it, but not our will, your will. At 24 weeks, Eliana Noah Turner was stillborn on July 14, 2009. It was a painful thing that we went through. It's still painful to this day. And I don't know why God had us go through that. I don't. I don't understand it. But I know that he had a plan for it. I trust him for the future. And in fact, we we got to take the triplets when they were uh, they were just over a year old. They're about 18 months old in these pictures. And um, we got to take them, and we've had a number of conversations about their big sister who's with Jesus in heaven I don't know. I still don't know. Six years later, seven, eight years later, I don't understand. It's still painful. It's still painful. But I trusted God with the future. And Amanda and I, when we found out that we had lost our child, we trusted God with our future. And we continued to worship Him because it's in moments like these where we're tempted to pull away from God. But in that time... We said, God, we're going to trust you with our future. Two years later, we have three most beautiful triplets in the world. I know there's other sets of triplets here, but come on. (laughs) It was painful. I didn't understand it, but I did submit to it. I did submit to it. Lastly, I want us to see this. Submitting our future to, the God, to God means that we trust God for the future even when we don't understand it, even when we don't understand it. Isaac couldn't understand why he'd been overruled. Isaac couldn't understand why God would choose the younger and not the older, why God wouldn't choose his favorite son, why God would choose to go against the culture. He didn't understand it, but when he recognized God's perfect plan, he went with it. He said, I get it now. I'm going to bless my sons by faith. I'm going to follow God's plan. I'm going to submit to it. I think Isaac finally understands everything that that's going on. He reaffirms the reality that, that Jacob is the one who's going to carry on the promises of, of Abraham. We see that very clearly in the way that he blesses Esau and the way that he blesses Jacob later. I didn't understand... When we lost Eliana, I didn't understand when God called me out of youth ministry. But I can tell you that as I followed him, just like Roger Staubach said, when we come to a point and we set aside our pride and we're able to obey, we're able to submit, we're able to submit, we find harmony, we find fulfillment, and we find victory. And that's exactly what God wants for us. I want to challenge you this morning, in what ways are you like Isaac and Rebecca? In what ways have you tried to impose your plans for the future on God's plans for the future? Will you this morning submit your, your future to him and say, God, you are sovereign in my life. You are the number one authority and I will submit to you. I will follow you. Even when it's countercultural, I want to avoid the strife. God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it even when it's painful. Even when I don't understand it. Even when it's difficult, Lord, I will follow you. Will you seek him? Will you submit to him and find harmony, fulfillment, and victory? We pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word speaks to us, that you give us examples to follow through Scripture. We ask that you would help us to learn from the story of Isaac, Jacob, Esau, and Rebecca, that we would learn to submit our will to your perfect will. Lord, Would you humble us? Humble us so that we can set aside our pride and follow you. That in following you, we would find harmony, fulfillment, and victory. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, as our ushers prepare to come forward, I do want to draw your attention to the connection card on the back side.